Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, September 4th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And on, joining me on today's po- podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Y Turn Bowie. Hey, everyone. So Chris is away. He is traveling to Toronto, to Canada, for the Toronto International Film Festival. So he will be missed, uh, but he will return not next week, but the week after, I think. I think he's back next week for at least um, a few days. days. But him and our team on Ground Toronto will be turning in reviews starting tomorrow. So please watch the site. You'll be seeing reviews for Joker and for Jojo Rabbit and a bunch of other movies we're excited to see. Yeah, now once he returns, we'll get him on the podcast to talk about all that, which will be exciting. Uh, I am flying to Florida tonight. I'm going to cover the Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, which is something I've never done before. I've never been there. I've always been going to the Hollywood version, and I've heard, like, everything in Orlando, it's bigger and better. So um, <laughs> so I'm excited <laughs> to check that out, but I will be gone for the next uh, couple episodes. Uh, and it looks like I just missed uh, Hurricane Dorian, which is good because I was kind of worried for a second there. Like for, for a few days, it looked like I was flying right when the hurricane was going to happen. And I was fearing, I mean, it's, I guess it's bad taste, but I was, I was fearing my flight was going to be canceled, which is in bad taste because, you know, there's a lot worse things happening because of this hurricane but uh anyways uh let's let's jump into what we've been doing let's move on to what we've been doing uh i yesterday i went to uh speaking of halloween horror nights i went to universal studios hollywood and i got a behind the scenes tour of a couple of the mazes a couple of the big mazes uh ghostbusters and a maze based on jordan peele's us and um, I've never done this before. I've I've actually usually turned down the invites to these early press previews because I want to experience the maze like on opening night with you know actual scare actors and the lighting. And this is like you're going into these mazes. Like if you've never been to Halloween Horror Nights, uh, basically, if, you know they do this event for like a month and a half before Halloween, and they 
build these mazes from the ground up. So they're built, uh, you know, with by Hollywood prop decorators and stuff like that. Like, but they're built in places that there were parking lots, places that there was, was nothing. So the, these are uh, things that are like going to be a fully formed set. Uh, and walkthrough experience that didn't exist a few months ago. So uh, it, it's insane that they're able to put all this together in such a short period of time. And getting to see them during the day is it's kind of um, you lose some of the magic because uh, you you aren't seeing them in the proper you know lighting. You're not getting the music. You're not getting the vibe. You don't have the scare actors. Like it, it, you get to see it with the lights on, which is I guess the equivalent of seeing like a nightclub with the lights on <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a little bit more scary in a different direction uh but i do want to report that the ghostbusters maze looks incredible i did a report uh on the site which you can read i'll link it in the show notes uh they basically are brad i wish you could go to this because they're taking you through the first ghostbusters um you enter through the firehouse uh you go through you know the lobby of the firehouse you go into to the containment unit and like they actually it's interesting because they are not only adapting that first movie but they're actually taking elements from the original dan Aykroyd screenplay like i guess in the original screenplay have you ever read the original screenplay brad no i haven't actually read the screenplay well apparently in the original draft they had a camera inside the containment unit so they could see the ghosts inside the containment unit and like they're using that idea that uh we will actually get we'll actually get to see what's happening inside the containment unit with like the ghosts like playing poker with each other and stuff like that. So there's a That's couple cool. yeah, it seems like they're fans that have, are really trying to take advantage of this and there's a lot of um I think Jacob would appreciate what they're doing with like kind of effects and illusions like they're using a pepper's ghost effect to uh turn the librarian that tells you to shush into the beastly monster that she becomes which is kind of like this effect that they use in the haunted mansion uh i do a whole write-up about all of this and you can also read about uh jordan peele's us maze i also have photos they allowed me to take photos in the ghostbusters part so if you want to see what slimer looks like he, he'll actually be you know coming down the hallway at you in this in this maze which is actually kind of exciting uh check out that report uh for all that um and um I've also been playing a lot with my new camera. I think I mentioned last week or the week before on the podcast uh, that I got the Sony A6400. This is a camera that was recommended to me by a lot of people, including David Chen. He has the 6500, and uh, we have been trying to find a good vlogging camera, and I've been using this. Uh, I've done two vlogs that are now up on the Ordinary Adventures channel with this camera, and it, it looks fantastic. It is a lot more work <laughs> over like the Canon G7X Mark II that I was using, which was kind of this point and shoot that was very versatile. Uh, this does not have stabilization and uh, is a little bit uh, harder to deal with in in real conditions. So I'm wondering how practical it is, but uh, I'm 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 loving it so far. So we'll, we'll see because I'm going to bring this to. Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando and shoot some video about that and some other stuff. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, but I, I've been doing like all the YouTube videos, you know, watching YouTube videos and learning how to, you know, use this camera and shoot shoot things properly and stuff like that. So uh, th that's what I've been enveloped in, not really watching a lot of stuff. Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, I had a very uneventful Labor Day, just hanging out with family and friends. But 
uh, as of today, I can talk about a trip I did months ago, earlier this year, to set of Creepshow, the new uh, Shudder-produced uh, streaming TV show based on the 1982 George Romero film. And uh, Peter, this was a crazy set visit. You know how on most set visits you are put in a room and they take you out and they sort of guide you very carefully from you know set piece to set piece and then take you back in the room and sort of it's, it's very much a rehearsed experience. Yeah, it's become more of kind of like a junket on set. It's not really uh, – you used to actually go and watch them film stuff, and now it's it's kind of like just a series of interviews. That's what we were able to do on this set, Peter. It was very much a, hey, come hang out and watch filming for hours if you want to. Come hang out and chat with whoever you like. Uh, oh, look, there's Tom Savini, legendary makeup artist. Let's call him over this table and have him sit down for an hour with you guys. Just to bullshit. And um, <laughs> it, it was one of the most fun set visits I've ever had. And – they even said, take out your phone, take personal photos, don't post them, we trust you. It was that kind of set visit. Wow. Uh, and, and the trust went both ways. And so, Jacob, it, I think I've gone on, I mean, over the last 15 years, maybe like 50, 60 set visits. I don't think that's ever happened to me, where they're like, sure, you can take photos. Yeah, so my phone's like full of all these amazing uh, creep show set photos. Uh, like they will just take pictures of the monitors while they were filming. I mean, of course, like, and of course, none of us posted any of this. We didn't share it. So it, it was a really good idea of, you know, Shutter, which is owned by AMC, the, the horror streaming service Shutter. Uh, they, you know, trusted us to be good and be journalists. And we were good and we were journalists. And, and we ended up just having a really positive time. I mean, that's a really great set. Um, I wrote, I wrote a lot of articles about this episode that are going up and slash them throughout the day. But, uh, the series is executive produced by Greg Nicotero, who uh, visited the set of the original Creepshow movie in 1982, and then was hired by uh, George Romero and Tom Savini to be a makeup artist on Day of the Dead, 1985. He founded K&B, the legendary makeup uh, effects studio, later in the 80s. He's now an executive producer in The Walking Dead, and he pretty much has used his Walking Dead power and his you know decades of influence and horror to get creep show made as a streaming series where each episode is going to be two stories, each one by a different director. They're all going to be in the same style as original movie, sort of a comic book inspired, you know, grisly tongue in cheek horror story. Uh, we were there for Rob Schraub. He's a veteran TV uh, director and comic artist was filming a short called bad wolf down about uh, Jeffrey Combs from reanimator fame playing a Nazi commander who surrounded a group of Americans, but it's the uh, full moon and the were Americans are all werewolves. So it's a werewolves versus Nazi horror shorts. We have to watch them film that. And we were able to interview Tom Savini, who's, who's directing a Joe Hill script for his uh, short. And we talked a lot to Greg Nicotero and like, all oh, this is on online. We'll be on Slash throughout the day. And we learned so much. Like they're filming each segment in less than four days to keep everything really fast and loose. Uh, they're reusing tons of sets. Like each set is like so covered in blood, they just strip it down, rebuild on top of it to build the next set for the next episode. And we get to wander around all these sets, all the various monster closets where they have like tons of monsters and bodies from previous episodes just tossed in the corner, just came out of the way. It was wild. And the thing I appreciate the most is uh, the set visits are always so sanitized. They always try to keep you away from the actual filmmaking process so they can you write the nicest thing possible. But we were watching them film for so long that at one point, Rob Schraub, the director, and Greg Nicotero, the director producer, had a straight-up near argument because we were watching a scene where a werewolf rips a guy's head off. And Greg Nicotero insisted that they shoot one dry take without a blood squirt in case something goes wrong with a blood pump, in case they ruin the set or the costume and they have to add digital blood. Whereas Rob Schraub said, no, we're doing this practically. I do, I do not want digital blood in my short. And they had a straight-up argument in front of the press about whether or not they should do two takes or one take. Uh... And it was fascinating to watch because you, you know these arguments happen on sets all the time, 
but you never get to see them as visiting press. And ultimately, Nicotero got his wish. They did a dry take with the head, which removed without blood. And they did the take with the blood squirt, and the blood squirt worked perfectly. So it's probably the version we'll see in the final cut. But yeah, I read, read about all this in the set visit, and it really made me appreciate, you know, filmmaking even more than knowing that this was not everybody constantly getting along and that you know, creative people were butting heads and having discussions and arguments makes me want to see creep show more because it's, you know, a work of passion, not a work of, you know, everybody on the same page at all times. So that's all coming up today. Creep show premieres later this month on shutter and I'm excited for it. But the set visit had a lot of really gnarly cool stuff. Okay. So look forward to his coverage on the site. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, ben, you've been traveling. Yeah, my wife and I went to Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, where we had never been before, and we spent Labor Day weekend there, and it was really great. We got stranded in an airport in Orlando, I think it was last year, uh, overnight, and the airline essentially gave us like vouchers to make up for it, like, hey, take a free flight on us, and and um, so we used those tickets because they were about to expire to go to Portland. And uh, part of the reason we went was because we'd never been to Portland and it seemed really cool. And we know that it had like really, you know, some of the best food in the country. Um, but another big reason was because our favorite band, the Midnight, uh, this synth wave band that I've talked about on the podcast before, um, was playing a show there uh, on Thursday night. So we went and, and saw them play. So that was pretty amazing. And then, um, yeah, just got to like explore the city and went to Powell's city of books, which is like one of the world's biggest bookstores, um, and ate all sorts of great food and all of that stuff. So Portland, I'd recommend it. What, what is the best food you ate in Portland? Uh, I'm saving that Peter. I'm saving that for the, what we've been eating section. Okay. Uh, HT, <laughs> what have you been up to? So my mom visited me in New York this weekend, and we went to, walked around and went around for a little bit, and she took me to see Phantom of the Opera, which I'd actually never seen on stage before. I'd seen the 2005 movie, I think, um, with directed by Joel Schumacher, and I... <laughs> I will admit, this is a movie that I really enjoyed as a kid, and oh, 2004, I'm sorry. And um, I don't know if I would go back now and enjoy it as much, but uh, I did really enjoy seeing the stage show, uh, particularly because all of the singers were obviously classically trained. This is you know, a story about an opera house um, based on the novel by Gaston Leroux, and uh, you know, the musicals by Andrew Lloyd Webber, but the... It, Seeing it on stage with people who are actually classically trained and singing in voices that were more suited to the opera versus the movie where it's a bit more poppy uh, was really cool to experience. And um, yes, I did get to see the chandelier crash, although not that well because I was, it was kind of obscured from my view for a lot of it. So it was just kind of let down slowly from where I saw, but it was still cool to see. And um, I really enjoyed just watching that and seeing that whole production um, and uh, just hearing like all the classically trained operatic singers and uh, even the the ballet dancers who are very were um, professionally trained too so I was just really impressed by the entire performance um, so that was a uh, cool to see and um, my mom also stocked up some food for me with because uh, I have an instant pot and she made a few dishes for me in the instant pot I guess I'll save it for the food section too you know because uh, I never been in the food section might as well share a couple of Vietnamese recipes yeah. Yeah, HT. We'll see you again in the food section. All right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading, the section that should be called Jacob's section. Jacob, what have you been reading? 
Uh, I'm actually, first of all, um, I know people hate talking about, I hope people, when people sometimes hate when talk about theme parks too much, but I've been reading two theme park related books, so I'll move quickly. Uh, the first one was a, a gift from Peter for my birthday, and that is uh, uh, Tashin, the really nice uh, book of the makes really great luxury coffee table books. Uh, they made a, a book called Walt Disney's Disneyland, and it's just a massive, oversized, hardcover coffee table book uh, about the history of that park. And... It is a gorgeous thing. The photographs are amazing. Like the, the color photographs from the 1950s, like of Disneyland that I don't, I'll never get to see back before people had cameras all the time. Like it's incredible. Like I know I've been to Disneyland proper, the California park, since I was a small child. But thanks to YouTube, I feel like I've been there. I feel like I can get around it pretty easily. <laughs> uh, but the park in the 50s and 60s was so different. And that the photographs alone make this a must own for theme park fans. But the uh, writing is also really good and full of great information. Some so many amazing behind-the-scenes photos. So uh, thank you, Peter. I'm really enjoying this book. Yeah, Tashin had a uh, booth at D23 Expo, and I saw that book, and I was, like, flipping through it, and I spent, like, probably a good, like, 15 minutes, like, flipping through it, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to get this for Jacob for his birthday. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, and what was the other book you read? The other book is uh, – it just arrived last night, so I barely looked through it. Uh, but is Mark Davis, in his own words, Imaginary Disney Theme Parks. This is off uh, – from authors Pete Doctor and Christopher Merritt. Uh, Pete Doctor, you may know, is the Pixar filmmaker who directed Inside Out, Up, Monsters, uh, Inc. And he currently actually runs Pixar. And Mark Davis is probably one of the most uh, influential artists of the 20th century that most people aren't really aware of. Uh, I talked about on the podcast before, but he was a Disney animator who was recruited by Walt Disney to design characters and buildings and rides for Disneyland. And his work is his fingerprints are all over Disney theme parks to the point where if you when you imagine a Disney theme park in your head when you imagine you know what a, what a ride looks like what a Disney theme park uh, character looks like that's not a Disney character it's probably a Mark Davis character and even rides that you know he didn't directly design like uh, he, he designed Parks of the Caribbean or characters for it character for Haunted Mansion uh, so many of like the buildings and uh, scenarios and scenes for those rides and like even like uh, he did not design Splash Mountain, but that ride incorporates many of characters that he did design from a previous attraction, and the other characters who were added to it are clearly based in his work. So Mark Davis is this guy who is more Disney than Disney because uh, when you think of Disney, there's a very strong chance you may be thinking of Mark Davis. Uh, this book is a massive hardcover; it's a two-volume thing. It retails for 150 bucks. It's cheaper on Amazon. But uh, it is a hefty book. You're getting a lot of book for that price. And uh, Peter, I know it's expensive buy, but this is something I would really recommend to you for just the photographs and the art and the history alone. Oh, I'm going to have to check this out. And this isn't the first time Pete Doctor has been writing stuff. I think he wrote like a book about like the nine old men or something. Or maybe it was a, a series of flip books or something. Uh, but he's been – I don't know how he finds the time. He's directing his own movie. He's running Pixar. And he's helping author books. <laughs> and they announced this book like two years ago at D23, our previous D23. Yeah. So he's been working on it for some time, and you can see the work. I mean, there's like 1,300 pieces of Mark Davis art in this, and it's so much fun to see like they have like the rough sketches from like iconic Jungle Cruise scene to like a photograph of like it being constructed with him on set, like you know helping them finish it to like a, a photograph of the finished version. So it's just. So much theme park nerdery, Peter. So much if <laughs> you enjoy that stuff. Okay, I might have to check this out then. Uh, Jacob, I have a question actually. Would sure. someone who's not that 
uh, invested and interested in theme parks be interested in this if they just want to learn about the history of Disney animation? Because I was really fascinated by what you were saying about him kind of helping to form that iconic Disney house style. Uh, his style is he's back of his career is mostly theme parks, and even though he mm-hmm. wasn't animated before that. Um, but I would Google Mark Davis art, and if you mm-hmm. like what you see, I would look for a, uh, a good deal on this. Because if, if you look at his art and say, yes, this appeals to me, I think you'll find a lot here. Because mm-hmm. even though he is more theme park than animation, uh, there there is so much of his work reflected through all of Disney at this point. Yeah, he, cool. he, he's very influential. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. I uh, I got to see an early screening of Todd Phillips' Joker. Um, this is a film that just premiered at the Venice Film Festival. It's going to be showing at Toronto. Uh, Chris is excited to see it, so we will hear from him next week on this. But, um, guys, uh, this this is a very good movie. Uh, it is a character piece. It is, um, it is bold. It is not what we expect from a superhero movie. I mean, I guess it's not a superhero movie, but a comic book adaptation. Uh, it, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is amazing. It's a, you know, award worthy performance. The, uh, the score is great. Uh, I don't really want to say too much about this film because it's something I want to have a spoiler discussion about because there's so much to dive in and dissect. There's some, there's some interesting twists and turns that makes makes me want to see it a second time, if that means anything. Um, but I, I will say that um, and the, the statement got a little controversial when I said it on Twitter on my tweet. But I, I am a little bit worried on how certain people might take the messages of this movie. Um, and that's not to say that this movie shouldn't be made. Uh, this movie, I, I guess if this movie has one downfall. I'll say this: it is it doesn't have really a message, or its message is very muddled. And I think because of that, because you're empathizing with this uh, insane mass murderer, um, it, it could by the by the wrong people be taken in the wrong ways and almost being being used as an anthem of sorts. Kind of, I guess, how people relate to Tyler Durden and Fight Club in ways, but this I think is different because there's no morality in this you know there's no jack there's no batman uh you know uh you know we'll talk about this later i don't i don't want to get go down that path uh, i don't think that makes this movie any uh it, it's not a criticism of this movie but it's definitely something while i was watching this movie that i kept on thinking about and a little bit worrying about uh but i'm excited to dive into this and talk with you guys once you see uh todd phillips joker but uh, definitely put this under your radar it definitely feels like if martin scorsese made a joker movie in like the 1970s or early 80s like it really does feel like that and uh um and what else have I been watching? Oh, yeah, I've been watching uh, – I watched the first half of Glow Season 3. Glow is one of my favorite shows on Netflix. Uh, I used to be a hardcore pro wrestling fan. I never watched, actually, the original Glow, um, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. Uh, but this series is so good. It's uh, I, I think I like it more when it's being a drama than it is being a comedy. But um, the first two seasons are some of my favorite Netflix uh, seasons. I will say this, I've only watched the first half of Glow Season 3, and I, I feel like they're, they're, you know, they've 
moved this season moves to Vegas and um it focuses more on the characters which I guess should be a good thing but to me I want more of the wrestling and because, without the wrestling I feel like it's 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 a little bit slower than it has been Ben I know that you've only watched the first few episodes uh, what are you thinking of Glow season 3 yeah, I think there's 10 episodes in season three. My wife and I finished the first four. And last night we were like looking for something to watch. And I remember that we were watching Glow and we both sort of looked at each other and maybe decided that we were just going to stop watching it. And that's after really enjoying the first two seasons. And I think it's the same thing that you're feeling. Like it, it feels like the propulsiveness is gone. And it was never like a super propulsive show, but it, it felt like there was a it had a drive to it in the first two seasons that is completely missing now. And it seems like at least over the first four episodes of season three, that it it's just spinning its wheels again. And there, you know, I, I just talked about like a uh, dear white people season three and handmaid's tale season three on, I think last week's episode of the water cooler. And it's like, what is happening in the third season of these shows where um, I don't know, it's just like everything sort of slows down so much. And yeah, I, I agree with you, Peter. I feel like, you know, in theory, the idea of turning inward and focusing on the characters sounds good, but um, in practice, I don't know, it, it's definitely missing something for me. Yeah, I feel like the wrestling show gave them all motivation to, you know, it was one of those shows where there it's about a bunch of people getting together and putting on a show. Do you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. for that show to succeed mean, meant a lot for all of those people, and I feel like in this season it's kind of that show doesn't even matter anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there was also like a ticking clock element to it. Like, oh, we have to do this by this time and we have to get ready by this time. And and we have to, you know, create this thing out of out of nothing, basically. And so there was there was like a, a sense that, you know, of stakes that I, I just don't feel in the first four episodes. And again, maybe something drastic happens in the back half of the season. But for me, I don't know, for four hours or however long it was, I don't even remember if this is actually a half hour show or, or a full hour anymore, but um, it, it just wasn't enough to, to keep me going. I think it, it kind of sapped all of my love for what I had come to to enjoy in the first two seasons. I feel like I need to complete the season to just see what happens, but this might be the end of Glow for me, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Oh, I was traveling mostly over Labor Day weekend, so I didn't get a chance to watch much. But I did watch the first episode of Amazon's Carnival Row, their much-hyped, uh, lavishly produced fantasy series. Uh, it was originally a, a screenplay by Travis Beecham, who wrote Pacific Rim. It's now, you know, years later after it was on the blacklist and after it was celebrated, it has become a t- an eight-episode TV show with season two on the way. And it is a show set in this Victorian-inspired, uh, Victorian England-inspired fantasy world where elves and other fantastical creatures are immigrants to this uh, very English world. And they live in the slums called, of the city, uh, an area called Carnival Row. And Orlando Bloom uh, plays a human detective investigating a series of crimes against, you know, the fae and other fairy folk. And uh, Cara Delevingne, De- oh goodness, uh, how do you pronounce her name, H.G.? I know, I know I you think, can. I think it's just Delevingne. Uh, Cara Delevingne plays uh, a fairy from, uh, a recently arrived fairy immigrant who knew him from their time uh, in a war overseas. And it's just blend of fantasy, noir, and, politi- and political conspiring, and gory violence, and um, Game of Thrones-esque sex scenes. It's a lot of things. It is, it is a lot of things going on here. And the first episode, I'm not completely sold yet, after the first episode. I 
like a lot of pieces. I am going to watch the rest of season one for sure. Uh, my wife is very much even more on board than I am. This is very much feels like I feel like it's shooting for both Game of Thrones fans and Out- Outlander fans. <laughs> you know, wants the cross section of those fan bases, and it's uh, maybe a little bit of Lord of the Rings sprinkled in there as well. It's almost like if Lord of the Rings, you know, had its own industrial revolution, it would look like this world. And yeah, it, it, is a, it is a very interesting thing, a very cool world. It has some clunky pilot things where it's trying to introduce a lot of ideas and characters in one hour. But Carnivoro, it's a, it's a good start. It is a solid start. I'm excited to watch more this week. Has anybody else watched this yet? Sounds like not. <laughs> I, I will All say right. this, Jacob. There's so much stuff on TV right now, that, and I, I've just been so busy. I feel like I'm missing out on so many great shows that are going on. Yeah, right now, Carnival Road does not feel like musty. Like, I'm not, like, actively shouting from the rooftops, you must watch a show like I will Dark Crystal uh, Age of Resistance and when I first saw that. And like I will with upcoming another Amazon show um, uh, that's coming later this month, which I'll talk about soon enough. Uh, but um, if what I described sounds appealing, you'll probably like this show. It, it is very much made for you if what I described sounds like your kind of thing. Uh, speaking of shows set in the English uh, or English-inspired worlds, uh, Great British Baking Show is back, and as discussed in the podcast, I believe they're doing weekly releases of the episodes as opposed to dumping them all at once this season. And guys, this show is still so lovely, and I, I want to—we've talked about this show so many times, so I don't want to linger too much. But it's the kind of show where, in an American reality show, when somebody is failing. It'll be a dramatic music sting, and it cuts to a close-up of somebody else, you know, like looking angry or happy after failing. And on Great British Baking Show, when a character succeeds, there's a close-up on their face, and they're smiling, and focus shifts to the person behind them, and they're smiling too. Or somebody does poorly, and they look sad and dejected, and the focus will shift quietly to the person behind them, and they look sad and dejected with them. It just is so different from American reality TV shows, where instead of emphasizing the conflict, it emphasizes how everyone's in this together. And... It is still the best, you know, chill out, relaxing show out there. And I think I may enjoy it more not binging it. I can space it out and let it come each week into my home, make me feel better for an hour, then go about my life again. I feel I feel like for, for all the shows to not have bingeable, like it doesn't seem like the show to do that with. Like, I feel like I would want to binge, uh, binge watch the great Brit- British baking show. Um, maybe I don't know. Like I've, I've binged all the others, but I feel like I would binge them in two or three, two or three sessions. I'd sit down, and just watch four episodes in a row, and it'll be gone in a day. Whereas this way, I can live with it for ten weeks. You know, I've, to me, that feels a bit more special. But that I, I know we've had this conversation on podcast before, and I personally am more for spreading out TV and not letting it pile up and pile up because it's all there at once. But that's my personal preference. Yeah, I listened to your podcast last week uh, about I think or was it last week or was it yesterday? It was. Yeah, it was yesterday, uh, and you guys were saying that you would like more room to breathe uh, with these episodes and stuff. And I, I feel that way too. And I, I'm, I'm hoping Netflix could come around to this because it seems like the only reason they did this was to make a bold statement and being like, "We're different, and we're giving the people what they want. They want it all right away, so we're giving it to them." But I feel like, as a culture, it's hurting us. But um, anyways, okay, uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, so I've been playing a little bit catch up because I got extremely busy once my girlfriend moved out here and uh, I kind of just never had the energy to go out of my house to see movies, especially since there wasn't a lot that was like really demanding my attention, even though there was stuff that I wanted to see just for myself to see how it was. So I finally got around to seeing scary stories to tell in the dark. 
Um, and I really enjoyed this movie uh, quite a bit. I feel like there hasn't been a movie like this made for a PG-13 audience that works so well in a long time. If I had seen this movie when I was a kid, I would have flipped for it. Um, it has, I, I like the through line that connects the various stories that come from the uh, original anthology book that became so you know famous when I was younger. Uh, I think that the representations of the monsters in live action are extremely well done. You can tell that they took as much time and care as they could to make them look just like the creepy drawings in the books. Um, I And even though, uh, like you guys have talked about before, the, the message and the thematic elements here with the constant um, references and showcasing of you know, what's going on with Vietnam and Richard Nixon and all that stuff are pretty obvious. I, I still really enjoy that the movie is trying to do something like that for an audience that may not necessarily be accustomed to getting those kinds of details from, from movies. And I think that this is, it's such a great gateway for a lot of uh, teens who will see this movie and suddenly become big horror fans and hopefully seek out other, you know, scary stories that, the, that are similar to this. Cool. And uh, what else have you been watching? You finally saw Lion King? I did. And uh, you know what? It's it's definitely there. Uh, it's a thing. I I didn't dislike it, but it's it just adheres so close to the original. And it just reminds you so much that the original exists and is better. That I, I There's so many things that I couldn't get past. Um, it's just for a movie that has such stunning visual effects. And, and I mean, like... I, I was crazy impressed by how good the visual effects here. The the animals look unbelievably real. Uh, they're even the landscape shots look look outstanding. But it the movie was just made to look so boring. And I, I've heard some of the producers and and Favreau and stuff talk about wanting to make this feel like a nature documentary. But even nature documentaries have much more interesting camera work than this movie does. It feels like that they were they just created these virtual environments and kind of vaguely moved around in them uh, with just very basic fundamental camera movements and did nothing to really make it stand out in a bold, vibrant way. And I think that's what they needed to do to make this work. And I'm also not a fan of some of the voice casting here. I think Beyonce is awful in this movie. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that she brings any emotion to the role. There's, there's one particular line where... Uh, towards the end of the movie where she says she call, tells the lionesses to attack and it's just so heartless and boring um the, and i just I, I was just really disappointed by by some of the voice acting here and it, um i was further reminded of this because the adams family trailer played before it too and i am so frustrated with charlize theron's work as morticia because it sounds like she's phoning it in and i'm just getting sick of so many voice roles going to actors just because they're big names instead of getting the best voice actors possible to do these roles. Um, and uh, yeah, the Lion King was just another, another piece of that frustration. I, don't know, I, I do disagree with you. I think Lion King looks good, but I don't understand why, why it's so soulless because it is such a, like a remake. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, uh, was it Gus Van Saint who did a shot by shot remake of psycho? Yes. And, you know, Psycho is black and white, and it feels old, whatever. And it, it Gus Van Sank recreating it with modern technology, or at the time modern technology, and giving it more uh, color and whatever. Theoretically, it, it should be a better movie, right? Like in theory, it it's an update, and like it it, it with better technology and whatnot. Um, but 
for some reason that is also soulless. Uh, Jacob, maybe you can bring some perspective here. Like why? Why? Uh, why indeed? Um, I know the, the popular theory with the Gus Van Sant Psycho remake is that he treated it as an experiment to see if a shop shot recreation can contain the power of the original film, which knowing his experimental career outside of that makes sense. So I think for Gus Van Sant, mimicking Psycho like that as an oddity, as an experiment, as a playground for him to, you know, try to fit, fit in Hitchcock's shoes and see if it's possible. That makes sense to me from that perspective, if not a commercial one. Whereas Lion King, I, I still can't quite understand. I, I have, still haven't seen it. I'm not excited to see it. When it's available to rent, I will pay my five nine nine on Amazon to rent it. I think you actually I, I, just hit the nail on the head, though. I think I think Favreau himself is very much into experimentation and pushing the boundaries of technology. And I think that may be, you know, bottom line, the reason why he made this movie, just to be able to, you know, push this tech forward with Disney's paycheck behind him, you know? I want to say, as someone who also hasn't seen The Lion King yet and doesn't plan to see it in theaters, um, that uh, better technology doesn't always mean better experience overall, oh. because I think the photorealism of this film really hinders that um, that soul and that life and vibrancy that you get from the original animated film. The um, medium of animation itself is just allows some, for so much more uh, expressionism and things that you can take and yeah caricaturing not just that but something that you can you know take more liberties with i think there was a really great side-by-side -side comparison of the hakuna matata scenes from the animated film and the uh the new john favreau film and with the animated film there's just so many colors and the blocking is so fantastic and all over the place and it's so exciting just to watch it looks like a painting in some ways whereas the john favreau version there's kind of just walking <laughs> the yeah. entire yeah. time and the, the colors it's, are just so like washed out it's the same thing with it looks like it's the same thing with the um, the uh, I just can't wait to be king musical sequence too, which I actually think works a little bit better than Akuna Matata in this movie, but because the animals are portrayed so realistically, they can't do what they do in what is a very big, broad, almost Broadway style musical sequence in the in the original animated Lion King. So it's really just uh, Nala and Simba trotting around the waterhole as all these other animals create distractions to keep Zazu away from finding them. And granted, there was a nice little touch of having a bunch of uh, baby animals, like helping them out and being their friends. Uh, that was kind of adorable. And what I seeing like a baby rhino and a hippo, you know, trotting around and everything. But it just, it removes so much of the excitement and the, the passion and the flair from the original Lion King. And and HT is right too. The, the, uh, the facial expressions alone, you just, you can't make one of these characters smile or frown or have a, a an expression of worry or or anything like that and so it's just it, it, it just feels like it lacks any life whatsoever yeah or dance or you know i don't know it just yeah i guess that's probably yeah yeah uh and brett uh with downton abbey coming out they're coming out with a, a movie you finally decided to step your feet into the tv show Yes, so my girlfriend is a big Downton Abbey fan. She wants to see the movie when it comes out uh, on September 20th, and she's been want wanting me to watch it for a little while, so finally took a dive over the weekend and watched the first episode, um, and I really liked it. It's it's definitely a, uh, a slower, very British show. There are a lot of characters to take note of and keep track of, um, but I do like it. I love the the dry British snark. Um, I like how warm some of the characters be. I like how um, are some of the how some of catty the characters are. 
And uh, I, I, I don't know if it was meant to be like a reveal at the time, because I don't think Dan Stevens was necessarily like a, a, a famous person at this point, but I knew Dan Stevens was in the series. So when they were waiting to introduce the person who's supposed to be inheriting uh, the estate and whatnot, I was I was like, oh, this is going to be Dan Stevens. <laughs> and my girlfriend was almost like a little bit frustrated. She's like, she's like, you knew, looked something up about this. I was like, no, I was like, he's the only cast member they haven't introduced yet. Of course it has to be him. So it's um, I'm interested to see where the show goes. Uh, I have I think I have enough time to pack the whole series in before the movie comes. I probably have to watch like two or three episodes a day between now and then. But I think I can pull it off. <laughs> Is anyone else here a big fan of Downton Abbey? I've never seen it. See, I tried watching the first episode. It's totally like the definition of a show, not for me. Um, I'm surprised, HD. I'm surprised you're not a fan of Downton Abbey because you seem to like the the kind of period stuff. You know, for some reason, I like period dramas in movies, but I can't really get interested in a, a period drama in a series. I don't know why. Um, it's just uh, too much of an investment for me, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've never gotten. I've never seen it. I feel like to me, Downton Abbey is one of those shows I like to call a discovery show where um, I feel like there's these certain shows that are usually they're kind of British shows or like they're, you know, streaming shows that I don't know. I don't have other examples of this, but people feel like they discovered it and then they like make a buzz about it to their friends. And I feel like Downtown Downtown Abbey was one of those shows where everybody felt not not just a relationship they not just that they liked the show but almost that they were responsible in helping it grow because they discovered it um i don't know I, at least judging by my twitter feeds and stuff at the time when that when that came out if it, it definitely felt like people like it took it more personally than just an average show I wonder uh, if it's because it was on PBS in the US and yeah. that's not a frequently you know the the channel for the best primetime cable yeah for sure um and i think you also see this with some netflix shows like uh making a murderer i feel like was one of those ones that people like discovered it wasn't like there was like a ton of buzz before it came out or that it was a high profile show you know but once you have that relationship to that show like you you almost feel like you're some way connected with it i think but uh maybe that's just me projecting here because i didn't like the show but um ben what have you been watching so I watched My Neighbor Totoro for the first time. This is uh, Hayao Miyazaki's movie uh, from 1988. And I've been like slowly, very, very slowly making my way through the Miyazaki canon. Um, I enjoyed Spirited Away. I really, really loved uh, Castle of Cagliostro. And this one, I, I think um, I'm like somewhere in the middle. Like I enjoyed it, but I I was sort of shocked to realize like how... Um, streamlined and and uh boiled down the story is to just these really really basic elements it's very much like a um you know there, there are some like supernatural kind of things because the the premise is these two girls move into uh, a house with their family the mom is sick the dad is a professor so he's not really uh i mean he, he's he's around but he's not like spending all day with them and they discover these um i don't know like forest spirits in the woods near their house basically and um that's that's kind of it like it there's not really much going on by way of plot um and it's it's very much like a day in the life of or a lot of the movie is is sort of a day in the life uh, following these two young sisters around um and i enjoyed spending time with them i i enjoyed uh you know obviously the animation is gorgeous and um 
and all of that stuff that, that you would expect for a Miyazaki property. Um, but I was just sort of more blown away than than anything else at just like how simple the story was. And I guess especially considering this came out in 88 and this was like, you know, it's around the time that movies like Little Mermaid are coming out and like stuff that I grew up watching, uh, you know, on the American side of animation. And a lot of those movies are like so jam packed with like crazy conflicts and huge uh, set pieces and like, um, I don't know, just a, a lot of stuff for lack of a better word. And this movie is very much not that. <laughs> so uh, I, I think I'm glad that I came to it as an adult instead of seeing it as a kid for the first time. Cause I don't, I feel like as an adult, I have much more appreciation and, and patience, frankly, for, um, for a story like this, where as a kid, I feel like knowing my younger self, I, I probably would have been too impatient to really appreciate this movie for, for what it's actually doing. So uh, yeah, my neighbor Totoro, I really liked it. Yeah, it almost has like a soul of like a Sundance movie or something, like especially with the uh, the human story in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, I also watched To Catch a Thief, which is a 1955 Alfred Hitchcock movie starring Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. I'd seen this movie when I was like 10 or 11 years old or something, and I don't rem- or didn't remember anything about it. Um, it's got a really, really cool premise. It's about uh, Cary Grant plays this guy who's a retired cat burglar named John the Cat Roby, and uh, Grace Kelly plays this uh, woman on the French Riviera who's like a tourist who has a bunch of money and, and tries to seduce him basically. And uh, there's somebody um, uh, who's committing jewel heists using the same tactics that uh, the cat used to use back in his day. And Cary Grant is uh, is supposedly retired and the movie sort of um, plays for a little bit with the expectations of like, is he actually the one who's committing these crimes or is there you know, like a copycat uh, uh, jewel heister out there. Um, so I'm not going to give that away in case anybody uh, hasn't seen this movie and wants to see it. I'll just say I feel like the movie works a little bit better on paper than it does in uh, in practice. I think the, um, the exterior shots, like a lot of it was shot uh, seemingly on the French Riviera and like the exteriors are just gorgeous and um, – really makes you want to take like a you know a globe trotting sort of vacation um and the chemistry between grant and grace kelly is is really great um but there's a lot of uh i don't know sort of puzzling editing choices and stuff like that in this movie so uh i i found it uh fine but um but not like one of hitchcock's best even though uh i think it's it's maybe like one of the ones that um that comes up like i i think it's probably like second tier hitchcock in uh in a lot of people's minds so um yeah that's to catch a thief um has anybody else here seen this it seems like something jacob you would have seen i i did actually i think i talked about it on water cooler episode a couple months ago because i um just i watched it um for the first time and uh, i really like it but yes it does kind of feel like uh second tier or maybe like almost Hitchcock working out a couple of his ideas that he would perfect in later better movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I do like the uh, the chemistry between um, uh, Grace Kelly and uh, Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, but, and, yeah. And, and the next show you're going to talk about, um, I, w- I would also classify like one of those discovery shows that I'm talking about. But this is a show I did like. 
quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Killing Eve. So my wife and I watched the first episode of this. Um, I, I think it's on Hulu right now. So that's where we watched it. Um, and uh, we only watched one episode because we just started the series last night. But I've heard so many good things about the show from, you know, a bunch of people. And having just watched uh, both seasons of Fleabag, we were both super impressed with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and what she was able to do as like a writer, creator, performer there. And I know that she wrote and sort of like oversaw the first season of uh, Killing Eve. So, um, yeah, we were excited to, to check this out. And I was a big fan of the first episode. It's like stylish and it feels like there's a little bit of like sort of a globe trotting action stuff in there as well. And it, I thought a little bit about um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge being brought on to write the next or, or contribute some to the uh, next James Bond screenplay after watching this. Like it's easy to see that the Bond people probably saw the first, you know, first season of Killing Eve and thought that, okay, this is the person for us um, because there's, there's sort of a little bit of that vibe there, even though it's more like serial killers than, uh, than um, I don't know, British super spies, but uh yeah, it, it's really great. I mean, I haven't seen enough of it to like really get into it too much, but uh, I would recommend it based on what I've seen and, and based on the million people that I've heard saying <laughs> great things about it. Yeah, and that jump from Fleabag to that is like totally different things. Like it's yeah. like you can be no, not that like it's so different. Mm-hmm. Um, HT, what what have you been up to? What have you been watching? So the first thing I want to preface with, the uh, series I actually wanted to talk about in the water cooler, I was not able to get to this weekend, and that's the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. I was really excited to see this series, but with my mom visiting, I could not persuade her to watch it with me. I I tried my best, but she kind of just dropped out as soon as I said puppets. So I was really upset about that. I know. Wait, what does your mom have against puppets? I know she's like, I don't care. I don't really like puppets. I was like, okay. Fine. She likes Henson, though, so she bought me my first copy of Labyrinth. So I don't know what she's talking about. You, you shouldn't have even told her there's puppets. You should just, like, pitch it as, like, this fantasy. I know. I like, there's weird non-humanoid creatures. <laughs> uh, but, well, it's okay, because um, we ended up watching a series that I've been tr- wanting to get to get into for a while, and that's Mindhunter. And uh, we only watched a couple episodes, uh, but I was just so enthralled by this series that I ended up watching the entire season later on my own. Man, this show is so good. You guys were not lying. Um, it's just so exceptionally well acted, well written, well shot, everything. And um, I wouldn't expect le- any less from a David Fincher series. But even after uh, David Fincher's first two episodes, which he directed, I didn't feel a drop off in quality the quality of direction at all. It was just uh, top top to bottom, just excellent all the way through. And um, I can't say enough about the performance too. Jonathan Groff is great. And Ator, who is kind of the reason I started watching this because I absolutely love her work in Fringe, uh, is also excellent. As is, um, oh, who is the supporting care, uh, actor who I can't remember? Uh, and he he's also excellent. <laughs> Um, but I, everyone in that show is great, and uh, I. Um, Did you have Colt McCallany? Yes. Yes, he's, Colt he's great. Yeah. He's so fa- he's so fantastic. Um, but yeah, I just um, was really gripped by this series, and I am looking forward to watching the, se- the second season, which I hear is just as good as season one. Um, another thing I watched uh, that I hadn't seen before and I've been always wanting to get to is The Blair Witch Project. This is a film that I never really got around to back when its hype was first at its peak. It came out in 1997 and uh, 1999, sorry, 99. <laughs> 
Y2K. I'm very interested to hear your take on this film because it was such a product of its time and there was not, you know, there wasn't really like a big found footage film and it was actually kind of marketed as if it was real and pe- some people mm-hmm. believe that. Yeah, I know all about that. I know like kind of everything, like the mythology around it and everything. And I'd heard about it, you know, through pop culture uh, sort of seepage uh, 1999, but I came out when I was seven is what I was trying to say. So I, I kind of missed the boat on that whole thing. Um, and it is still a really effective horror movie. Uh, it uses its ambiguity and the darkness and the power of suggestion so well that I just enjoyed it as a, not just a horror movie, but just as like almost a psychological thriller on the first part, because you don't really see much and there's very little gore, but a lot of it is just like that power of suggestion and that that spiraling paranoia um, working so well uh, in the, the context of the film. And yeah, the found footage, I think, really worked for me, um, despite it you know, being you know, aged very much to that time period. Uh, I just felt like it felt almost like a, um, a snapshot of, of 1999 at the same time as being just a great horror film on its own. And I think that like, those two working together worked really well to sell uh, the Blair Witch, their Blair Witch Project to me. So it was great. It really holds up. What What do you think of the ending? I the, like the ending. You like it? Is it was it controversial? Yeah, I mean, because it just, I mean, I guess spoilers for Blair Witch Project coming up, <laughs> but it like just ends. We see like a guy in the corner. Well, I don't know. Actually, now you have rewind. When you when mm-hmm. you originally saw this in the theater in '99. You kind of weren't sure what you saw, and you either had to go back to the movie theater and see it again, or wait until it was on DVD and then be able to rewind it. So uh, yeah, I like that idea. I like I think that ambiguity and that like idea of just not really knowing what you watched really works for this film and really works as a storytelling device in general. So I liked it. Anybody else have thoughts on the Blair the ending of the Blair Witch Project? While we're it's on the it. only way it could possibly end. I love it. Yeah. I love that it pissed so many people off. But um, I guess now these nowadays we're used to found footage movies having that abrupt ending. It kind of created you know the template for how these movies end. But it's such a bold move because that if we, if we are going to find footage in the woods and put it in front of millions of people in theaters, you're not going to have an ending. You're not you're not going to have that. You're not going to see the monster that kills everybody. And for better or worse, it's the best way you could have told that story in the style they were telling. I don't know. I feel like if they were to make this film today, you'd have to see The Witch. Like, even, like, a glimpse of it before it goes out. I don't well, think I so. I mean, I think logistically it makes sense to yeah. just, like, the technical aspect or, like, the, you know, the logic of the film itself. Like, that she would just drop the camera and you wouldn't see anything that happens on screen. I mean, I like it. I like the ending. I'm just, I, I, I'm more cynical in thinking that, like, you couldn't make this ending today. Well, did you see Blair Witch, the newest one? Did I did. See... I did not. <laughs> well, you, you get you get to see a lot of monsters in that one, constantly in your face screaming. I like the movie quite a bit. Like, I think it's a really fun roller coaster. Uh, but it's, it's that it's a roller coaster, whereas this one is just pr- profoundly unsettling. Uh, and not at all out to entertain you as much as it wants to get under your skin. So I would actually recommend Blair Witch, the new one. It's, it is fun, uh, well, but the old one is just this crazy masterpiece. Well, well you know what HD has to do next? Um, she needs to watch Blair Witch Project uh, Book of Shadows, which is one of Chris's favorites, right? Uh, uh, Chris Chris likes it. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, and, and many people do not like it. So uh, I'm curious to see 
If HG is... thinks Chris is right on this one. No, Jacob's right because um, Book of Shadows is hot garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I feel like Chris and I agree on a lot of things, but the one thing we will diverge on is mo- is horror movies. Okay, uh, what else have you been watching, HD? Um, I was also, speaking of Hitchcock, as Ben was talking about earlier, I saw The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 1934 original film that Hitchcock would later remake into a 1956 film of the same name, uh, start with, Jane, with James Stewart and Doris Day. So this original film... Uh, uh, starred Leslie Banks and Edna Best, and it was during Hitchcock's UK era of his films, before he broke out into Hollywood. And um, it also stars Peter Lorre, who is just phenomenal in this movie. I, um, I mean, he's you know uh, widely accepted as like one of the best, the a really a great actor. <laughs> I'm saying really badly, but he's just fantastic and everything that he's been in. And uh, watching him in The Man Who Knew Too Much was just a reminder of just how fantastic he is. He, in the few scenes that he's in, in the beginning, just strikes such a malicious uh, presence, uh, despite not really saying much and not really doing much, except for maybe like smoking a cigarette and having this strange white streak in his hair. But um, he's just just over the top amazing. Anyways, The Man Who Knew Too Much is about a couple who are on vacation in Switzerland and who witness the shooting of a friend um, and are sort of brought into a plot that their friend may be involved in. But as they are in possession of a vital piece of information, their daughter gets abducted and they are threatened to um, have something horrible happen to their daughter if they do if they tell the authorities anything about the information that they have. So it's a sort of grand spy plot that um, and sort of wrong man's kind of premise that Hitchcock loves to do, but in a sort of smaller, lower budget, uh, as was the case with a lot of his British films. But despite that, he manages to um, craft these really big set pieces that feel much more epic and grand than they really are on screen. There is one sequence which I feel like was definite was a definite uh, influence on the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation uh, Vienna opera sequence in which the climax of the film takes place in an opera house when there is going to be an assassination attempt at, and the shooting will happen at this big, um, you know, uh, um, musical swell, <laughs> so it um, it's so well staged, and it's just a it's really fantastic, you know, suspense that is um, built into the film. And uh, I found myself, despite there being a lot of things that don't age well, such as the dialogue and some of the more clunky uh, camera movements, it really works uh, as a almost more mo- almost modern day thriller. So uh, this is a film I recommend a lot. The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. I watched it on the Criterion channel. Okay. And uh, you watched one other film? Yes. Uh, I saw an early screening of Hustlers, which is going to be debuting. It's making its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this weekend. So I actually can't say much about it. It's directed by Laureen Scaife. Scafaria, and it's based on a viral New York Magazine article about former strip club employees who um, hustled their Wall Street clients and schemed them, scammed them out of millions or thousands of dollars. Uh, it stars Jennifer Lopez, Constance Wu, Lily Reinhardt, Cardi B, Lizzo, and um, 
I don't think I can say much before the TIFF premiere, but uh, I will say that it's Jennifer Lopez is great in it, and um, it's quite funny, um, much more than anticipated. So um, check out my full reaction when uh, the uh, the embargo breaks uh, at TIFF this weekend. Okay, let's move on to what we've been eating. By the way, I should say, guys, when you don't have me hosting the water cooler, last week I think you did it in like a half an hour or something. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> ben, how does that happen? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> but with me here, it happens in three times the length. Uh, okay, uh, what we've been eating, I've been eating very horribly. I have not even weighed myself, but I've definitely gained a lot of weight. Uh, I am going to be going back on a diet, uh, my strict diet, after I return from this Florida trip. Um, I, I, I feel really badly, and uh, I, I am ashamed, Jacob. I'm ashamed because I've, I'm seeing your progress, and I, 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 I have taken 10 steps back here. I've just had no, so much you've travel. Taken, you've taken one step back, Peter. Come on. Um, here's the most the most important thing to know here is that you did it before and you can do it again. Yes. Like that, that, honestly, I took last week off because it was my birthday and there was travel, so I ate a lot of junk food last week. I'm, I'm not proud of it, um, but I, I was back at it this week, and you'll be back at it next week when you get back from your trip, and you're gonna lose it all, get back to where you were, and then make more steps because that's how it is. You you proved before in front of us all that you can do it. You can do it again. That simple. You know what's bad for this diet, Jacob, is is running a theme park vlog channel <laughs> because like people want to see you eating the the cool food, which is bad for you. Um, speaking of bad for you food, Brad, what have you been eating or drinking this week? Uh, nothing too crazy, except for just a new Mountain Dew flavor that came out um, fairly far in advance for what seems to be a, I guess, a Halloween themed flavor. Uh, it is Mountain Dew Voodoo, D-E-W, because of the Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> and it is, uh, it's a mystery flavor. So they don't actually tell you what it is. And you have to take your best guess and try to figure it out. I don't know when they're going to announce what it is. Um, my best guess is, I know it's something tropical, kind of. It's It kind of tastes like... Maybe an orange creamsicle thing, which feels like it's it fits right in because there have been a lot of other uh, orange creamsicle kind of uh, flavored like snacks and sodas coming out recently. Um, but then, like I, I was thinking that maybe it could be something like a like a passion fruit or something like that as well. Um, but then it also has like almost like a just a, a general Skittles. Uh, aftertaste, like if you, if you were to take just a handful of Skittles, not just a single <laughs> one. Um, so I, I really don't know. I, I guess there's a whole Reddit thread with people trying to guess. <laughs> there's some really stupid guesses, too, that people seem to be serious about, not just trying to make jokes. And I don't know what's wrong with people's tongues. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to see what the flavor actually is. If it's, I don't know if it's something that, you know, uh, they're going to have stick around more permanently. Yeah, I had a friend try it, and they said Skittles is what they said. So I, th- I think maybe that that's probably right. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It would, se- it would seem weird to have a flavor just be Skittles. <laughs> I, I would. By the way, that makes me want to try this Mountain Dew Voodoo because I like Skittles. So fair enough. I'd like well, to t- put some, taste. Put what? some Skittles in the microwave, Peter. Just drink up. Gross. <laughs> <How cross. laughs> <laughs> oh my god, nasty. <laughs> we, we, we've just found the vlogging channel that Brad is going to start, where he just <laughs> microwave. Microwave it. <laughs> microwave it. I feel like there's already a YouTube channel for that. But do the people <laughs> thanks, actually thanks, eat thanks. it afterwards? 
<laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing is you you have to microwave things to try and recreate the taste of other things. Oh God. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ben, you teased this in the intro. What what did, what was the best thing you ate while you were on your trip? Yeah, so in Portland, we went to this place called Pine State Biscuits, and the biscuits there are out of this freaking world. They are incredible. Specifically, we got two things. We got uh, an item called the Reggie, which is a biscuit that has fried chicken, bacon, and cheese on it, and it's all topped in this sausage gravy, and it is, like, mouthwateringly good. I am so mad that I won't have it again unless I go back to Portland, um, because we stayed at a hotel that was like within just a few minutes walk of this place and had that for breakfast every morning we were there because it was so good. We have, we had it the first morning and like had some other things in mind for like, maybe we could do breakfast at these other places. And then that was just so good that it just drew us back every time. We also had uh, just a regular biscuit there that had um, strawberry jam on the side and the strawberry jam is so good and you can really taste like the fluffiness of the biscuit if you just get that by itself instead of with the Reggie where it's sort of like drowned in all this other stuff. Both are delicious and I would highly, highly recommend them. And then really quickly for either anybody who's in Portland or maybe going, I just want to run through a quick list of some of the places that we went where we got incredible food. Um, so if you're looking for recommendations, here you go. Uh, a place called Pock Pock, Russell Street Barbecue, Stretch the Noodle, Blue Star Donuts, Multnomah Whiskey Library, Luce, and Hot Yai. So all of those places, top notch, definitely worth recommending. You know, I have to derail this conversation yet again. <laughs> I got to make this podcast longer, Ben. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious because it sounds like you, you ate and drank a lot of good things. Like how do you end up finding where you end up going when you go on these trips like so do that you was use yelp the, or uh, that's my wife's domain for the most part she does tons of research before we go anywhere to make sure that we have like amazing experiences um and and yeah it's a lot of uh it's a lot of yelp stuff it's a lot of um searching through like local blogs and just um you know best of lists and like lots of uh, cross-referencing and and um some of it has to do with location too you know like where we're staying what areas of town we're going to be in so we like to have you know a, a group of several different options in certain sections of every town that we go to just in case we happen to be there during a meal we have like a few places and we're not like stranded and have to just resort to some sad thing that we could get at any you know, at in you know anywhere that we normally are. You know, it sounds like Amy. If 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 she all of a sudden lost her job, uh, she she could have a career in travel planning. Oh yeah, I mean, there's this whole thing like the <laughs> you know the, we we were actually looking into that briefly at one point, not not in any serious way, but there's a whole thing where like people will pay you to go and shoot their like their uh, vacations like at, and you know we're we make travel videos occasionally and um wait like, <laughs> you videotape someone else's vacation yeah yeah they pay for like your plane tickets and your your uh lodging and all that stuff and for you to like do all the things with them this is for like ultra rich people who just want to to not worry about having to film themselves and they just pay you as like a crew to like follow them around and create like an amazing travel video of their experience. But you get to sort of participate in it too. I mean, you're, you're working because you have to shoot them, but you still get to do this stuff. And we're like, man, that sounds like a cool job. But then you're also like, <laughs> you know, the, the level of people that you're probably dealing with at that point where who have like that level of money, I have to imagine, uh, I mean, this is painting with a very broad brush, but I have to imagine a lot of them are 
kind of dicks, you know? Like, yeah. So it probably wouldn't be fun. Um, and you'd probably be dealing with like really awful kids and, uh, you know, just a lot of entitlement. And I don't know if it would be worth the headache, but uh, I'm sure somebody's out there ha- has that job and it, it's probably pretty cool. Okay. I said HT was going to return. She is, she is returned to talk about food. Yes. Uh, yes. Tell us about all the foods, HT. Yeah, my mom came, cooked for me, and it was great. Um, so she made me this beef pho dish, which is like a very traditional beef pho dish. Usually I'm able to make a chicken pho one because it's slightly easier to do in the Instant Pot. And the beef pho, I've, I've learned, is a very intense process. She had to go to the butcher and get like uh, beef bones to stew and in the soup for a long time and she had to get beef ribs as well and it was a whole long process it took more than a day to do but the end result was delicious and i now i have lots of extra pho left over i wish i had filmed the process actually like on my instagram because that would have been a lot of fun but i was just too excited to eat um but yeah it was um she made me a lot of things like that and she also prepared for me something called uh, char siu, which you might uh, recognize as Chinese barbecue pork. Um, in Vietnamese, we call it sa siu. And uh, it's a, just like a pork that you that you often find in, um, do you guys know the Vietnamese sandwich, bang mi? You might hear it said as ban mi. Yeah. Yes. That's the, that's the pork that you often find, and it has kind of like a red um, tint on the outside. Uh, and it's more white on the inside and it's delicious. So um, I'm, she gave, she made like big cuts of that for me and I'm going to be making probably some bang mi myself as well as maybe some stir fry uh, mian, like egg noodles to go with it with some vegetables. So I'm all prepared. I'm just really excited about the, the meals I'm going to be making with this food. And uh, I also learned how to make a childhood favorite recipe of mine, which I've been begging my mom to teach me for a while, and it's surprisingly easy. It's for this dish called Tit Ba Sao. It's basically a stir-fried beef dish, just a very simple marinade, like soy sauce and um, oyster sauce. And um, it makes this most delicious, sort of buttery, almost tasting uh, stir-fried really thinly sliced beef that you can eat either with french fries as my mom used to make them or healthily with green beans and rice so (laughs) i was able to make that the other day i'm going to make it at some point again and um put it on my instagram story because i know we've gotten some requests for me to actually talk about those recipes that i put on instagram story i will put that on my insta story and you guys can see me not burn down my kitchen as i make that dish yeah, we need to see a vlog channel from you as well of HD Cook Stuff. That should is what it should be called. Yes, HD Cook Stuff and sweats and cries <laughs> while she does it. <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing this week? It looks like you had a game day. I had many game days over Labor Day weekend with family and friends. A lot of games I've discussed before on the show, so I won't repeat those, but uh, a few that I want to at least mention uh ones that were new to me i want to start with king domino it's a very common very simple game you can find it at your local target uh but it's really brilliantly simple it just takes the mechanics of dominoes where you want to align the various pieces in order to you know create the right matches but in this case you're trying to use these domino-esque pieces that were each area is a different territory of the kingdom like a farmland or a body of water or a forest and you have to try to match them up to form a 25 five by five grid of squares and there's a cool like little bidding system where you can, where you can bid on which piece you want to grab next. So you, and whoever uh, goes last um, is stuck with something, but they make it to go first next time. And 
a game plays in literally 10 minutes, takes two minutes to teach. It's a lot of fun. It's like 25 bucks. That's King Domino. Really good family game, like a warm-up game. A more complicated game, uh, Silk. This is a fantasy farming game where you are a shepherd trying to uh, tend to your flock of giant silkworms using your weird goat hound companion to herd them across the map. Meanwhile, there is a weird wolf monster trying to hunt them down. It's very, very cute art style. Uh, everybody liked looking at it, which is a fun game to like have on the table. The gameplay itself is really tricky because you use your figures, your um, pieces, to literally shepherd things around. Like when you move your little dog piece into a square that has uh, your worms or somebody else's worms, they get dispersed to another area. So you, it's a game of trying to get your worms where they need to be so they can munch on grass and give you silk while trying to maneuver your opponent's worms uh, out of uh, out of where they want to be. So it's it can be a very nice game where everybody kind of gets along or a very mean game where you're all about trying to push everybody out. I played it both ways, and both ways were very fun. That's Silk. Uh, a little bit more complex, uh, Bargain Quest. It's a game that was originally only available last year through the designer's website. Now it's more widely available. I found it at a few game shops. And the gist is that you live in a town overrun by monsters and marauders and a group of heroes have arrived to uh, get rid of the monsters and save the day. And you are all the local shopkeepers. And your job is to make as much money as possible from the heroes. <laughs> so when they arrive in town, they come with a certain amount of money. And you can play the game two ways. You can play the game by selling them actually good stuff and actually looking at the table and, and what monsters are there and equipping them as best you can and winning points each and getting in like people knowing your shop supplied the heroes. Or you can try to fleece them for as much money as they're worth and win through profit but possibly send them into situations where they'll most definitely die. Wow, uh, so th this is the most capitalist <laughs> fantasy game I've ever heard of. This is the most 2019 game ever, too. Yeah. But it, it's a blast. It, it is a little more complicated. Um, a few people at my table ha didn't really understand the strategies until the back half of the game, and by then it was too late. But it was a very, very fun game. That's Bargain Quest. And I'm going to talk about an old favorite. Uh, I've been playing it for a few years now, and that's Scythe. It is a massive, complex game. It takes a half hour to teach. It took us four hours to play. I love games game at the table, but it's a beast. And it's a set in 1920s. Alter, sorry, set in alternate uh, universe, 1920s Eastern Europe, full of mechs powered by steam and crazy sci-fi uh, concepts, while still being distinctly, you know, 1920s. And it's a game of. It's really a Cold War game. You can get in the fights, but you need to pick your fights carefully because you're trying to control this territory. You always have rival nations. But you also need to produce goods. You need to produce, you know, um, uh, you need to produce uh, things like iron and food and wood. And you need to build civilizations. You need to make sure you're popular. You need to make sure that people like you. You need to make sure your military power stays high. It's all about balancing these various tracks and trying to maximize each turn so that you gain the most out of your money and time. And it's also a really cool game where you get mixed to fight each other across the countryside of alternate 20s uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, Peter, I know you're a big Scythe fan. I know it's very popular online. There's a uh, really good digital version out there, too, if you want to play it on PC. But it's a gorgeous-looking game, and every time it's on my table, people are just wowed looking at it, and they play it, and they're really, really frustrated because it it's very hard. But when it's over, everybody's really happy and wants to play again. See, it's a complicated game, so it's hard to get people to play it. I wish there was an iPad version of that digital version you mentioned on the PC. Like, if there was an iPad version, I could, could get a lot more plays out of it, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that they have not um, moved it to a tablet or an iPhone yet, but it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's just too many moving pieces for a smaller screen, I don't know. Yeah. Jacob, I'm, curi I'm curious about, so I know you have tons of board games, like endless amounts of board games, <laughs> and when it comes to the more complicated ones, 
do you sit down by yourself first and read through all the rules so that way when you have people over you can easily and quickly explain it to them or do you all just learn it together like for the first time when you open it always the former i will always learn a game first i will not bring game to the table if i can't teach it right then and there gotcha uh, okay. i feel like stumbling over rules with people um it takes a long time and it leaves everyone at the table getting frustrated so it, it's oh i always learn it first is it hard to do it when you're if like you come across something that you didn't when you were learning the rules like certain situations where you have to go look up like the rules for a, a specific scenario or, or anything like that oh that happens that's, that's when, you, when you pull up in the rule book and since you read it before you hopefully know where to look to, or, you know because you're familiar with the layout of the book you're really like familiar with the way they well, can be example, big. A game like King Domino is three pages. Then oh. uh, Scythe is like 50 pages. Oh, God. And then there's Twilight Imperium, which is a game that I've played, um, goodness, I play about once a year, maybe twice a year. And that's a 80-page rule book, at least one, the third edition was. Um, we, we should say that Scythe is a, not even that complicated of a game in board game terms, but it's complicated enough that it comes with suggested starting turns for your first, like, what, like five turns or something? Yeah. Yeah, if, if, you, if you were, like, completely drawing a blank, there's a little help, help hint card that says, hey, on this turn, try this. Which uh, is actually really useful. Um, but like I said, um, again, there's, there's other games, like this, the Diplomacy. It's a very famous old game. The rulebook's only 12 pages long, but game plays takes eight hours to play. So the rulebook doesn't necessarily always align to complexity or running. But, you know, they run the gamut. It could be a game that literally is a single page front and back for rules. And then there are games that, you know, are novel. And you got to take hours to learn them. And I love them both, damn it. Do, do you read the rule books or like I usually will go to YouTube and there's like a bunch of sites out there like uh, uh, Rodney's How to Play and oh, yeah. Watch It Played. You mean Watch um, It Played? Yeah, sorry. Watch It Played is really good. I also like um, Rado Runs Through. Uh, yeah. Are two really good ones, but they don't cover everything. And uh, if Rodney has a video, you probably don't need, need the rule book because he's, he's he's the absolute best at, at teaching rules. That's that's Watch It Played on YouTube. But he's only one man. He can only covers so many games. Uh, so I always, um, I, I am the token rulebook guy of my group. It's my duty. I learn the games and I teach them. And, See, that's what, that's what I was about to ask is if there was a YouTube channel because one of the things that I've liked is uh, when I go to visit some of my friends who live near Lafayette uh, in Indiana, where I went to, to college at Purdue, they have a game cafe there where you can go and like you just you pay like five dollars. And you can sit around all day, and they have uh, tons of board games, and you can play whichever ones you want to with your friends. And what I like about it is they have people there who know how to play all the games. So they'll come over, and you'll be like, we want to play a game that's you know kind of like this. So, and they're like, oh, well, here. Like, we'll, and they'll bring some options over, and then they explain like the basic rules and like get you set up on how to play. And it makes it so much easier to dive into a game that otherwise might take us forever to figure out how to play. And I, and I feel like it makes the experience that much more enjoyable, too. Yeah, if you go to a gaming cafe and they have the opportunity, they have somebody curate your, your night for you, and they somebody have, they say like, "Hey, we want a game like this," and they'll teach it for you. It can be really, really fun because uh, those the people who work at those cafes tend to really know games and really know how to read your table and suggest something. Yeah, if if someone knows how to play a game, I feel like you can get into the game in like less than ten minutes, as opposed to like sigh if you sat down to learn that with a group of friends not having read the rule book or watched a video it could take you an hour and a half before you're on your first turn so yeah like we yeah we like we were suggested one time uh betrayal at hill house and or house the game, in the hill i'm sorry house, yeah sorry I'll, house be, in the hill. I'll be that guy <laughs> but no it, and i uh that's a game that i probably never would have 
like picked up to try because it look it does look kind of complex and complicated but having someone start us off on it and explain to us you know how to play it and like get get us going on our first round made it that much easier and it's a game that i now own yeah and it should also be noted that there's a great uh, website called Board Game Geek, which is kind of like the IMDb for board games, uh, has a huge community around it. So if, if you're ever in a game, a board game, and you're stuck on some kind of rule, if you do a search and you include BGG at the end of your search, like about a certain card or something, there's definitely a forum thread on Board Game Geek explaining, you know, the answer to your question because it's that kind of community. Um, that saved me so many times. Uh, okay. Anyways, uh, lastly, uh, I in what we've been playing, I wanted to talk about something stupid that I've decided to do. I was at Galaxy's Edge, as I often am, and uh, I we were vlogging, and I came up with the idea that I'm gonna do what I'm calling the Black Kyber Crystal Challenge. I, I'll put a link in the show notes to this video if you want to watch it, uh, but I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version. In Galaxy's Edge, uh, when you build your lightsaber. Um, as Brad did when he was in Galaxy's Edge, uh, you get to pick your own kyber crystal. The kyber crystal comes in a variety of colors. The crystal changes the the color of the blade and is also associated with the Jedi or Sith. Brad, what color did you pick? I went with red. Red. I picked green. And that's because Brad's evil. Um, and uh, I... Uh, one of the interesting things is you can buy more kyber crystals than Doc Ondar's. And if you buy a red kyber crystal, there's... I'm not sure what the odds are. The 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 thing that's going around online is one in a hundred. There's a one in one hundred chance that you could get a black kyber crystal. Um, so the black kyber crystal is like a, it, these kyber crystals come in this packaging. You can't see through the packaging. There was a way to hack this by shi- shining your uh, iPhone flashlight through the packaging and seeing if there's a black kyber crystal in there. They have since moved the kyber crystals behind the counter and they've since in the latest manufacturing of these kyber crystals installed a piece of paper that makes it impossible to shine your light through the kyber crystal anyways this is a long way of saying that a kyber crystal is a very elusive limited thing that is hard to find they sell for upwards of two thousand dollars on ebay um it's very hard to, to get it's expensive to get uh, I've decided I, you know, I own a lot of things from Galaxy's Edge, guys, and I, I want a black kyber crystal, and I go to Galaxy's Edge almost weekly for this, for these vlogs. So I'm doing this thing in my vlogs that every time I'm at Galaxy's Edge, I'm gonna buy a red kyber crystal, hoping to one day get a black in there. And I, I'm, I'm curious how long it will take me, how many, how much money it'll, it'll cost me, and how, uh, how many, uh, you know, how long it will take me to actually obtain this black kyber crystal. So uh, you can watch a video about that. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, Jacob, am I stupid? Uh, in a word, yes. But in two <laughs> words, no, no. Because I support this kind of behavior. What are What are you going to do with all of the red kyber crystals that aren't black kyber crystals? See, that that's also weird because um, I was, you know, originally I was thinking of selling them on eBay just for like the price I paid. But Disney has recently cracked down on eBay, uh, on uh, people selling stuff on eBay. And one of my friends actually got her annual pass taken away from her because she sold a coaster from Oga's Cantina, uh, which she got for free on eBay for five bucks or something. Wait, how do they how do they know who who these people are and like where they're what where they're getting them from and stuff? Uh, that's that's a I don't know. I'm not even sure. I'm guessing that they are actually. Because there was no information on who the person was, I'm guessing that 
Disneyland is actually buying stuff and you know penalizing annual pass holders i don't know anyways it makes me scared to sell stuff on ebay that i bought at disneyland because i don't want to be seen as a you know a flipper or scalper or whatever uh so i don't know what i'm going to do with these I, I might at the end of this maybe i'll do a contest and i'll be giving away red kyber crystals on on the youtube channel you could sell like raffle tickets raffle t- well i think disney would look down upon that too i don't know they I don't, don't have. To. I don't think I'm going to make my money back. Uh, this is. I think this is just a total loss. It's just a question. I think of you're gonna, how you're much gonna lose a lot of money? How yeah, much money am I going to spend? Is the question. I mean, your reward is in the joy of experiencing this challenge, Peter. I have money friend, is no object. I have one person I know that went to Galaxy's Edge on their first visit, randomly bought a red Kyber crystal and got a black so it does happen it doesn't mean that i it it, it, it might not mean that i'm going to actually buy hundreds of kyber crystals but uh Peter, I don't know. Here, here's, an, here's an idea instead of doing this kyber crystal challenge just each <laughs> each week you go back to galaxy's edge give give one of us 15 or 20 dollars however much it costs for a kyber crystal and we'll just tell you nope it's not a black one and it'll be, just, <laughs> it'll be the same experience yeah the, to make matters worse this is going to make you think even less of me the black kyber all these kyber crystals are tied to a spirit of a jedi or sith um the black kyber crystal is tied to snoke so it's not even like it's a cool person it's tied to but i still want it because uh, snoke has a black uh ring that i guess is apparently a kyber crystal that's why so um anyways watch that video online and follow my adventures because every time i go to galaxy Edge, i'm gonna uh, spend another 12 dollars to see if i can roll the dice and uh you know get one of those black kybers so um yeah uh you can find more all of our work at slash you can find this podcast published every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slash And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob? Uh, I've opened the book. Yeah. Which book? The Disneyland book? No, it's either the gargantuan <laughs> book of insult, offense, and effrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and impolite put downs. Wait, wait, can we, switch, can we switch to the Disneyland book and then, like, each week learn, like, some some facts about Walt Disney and the, the people who made Disneyland? We need to finish this book first, Peter. How many more entries do we have? I'm assuming a couple thousand. Oh. <laughs> uh, All right, well, I have opened it up to the Fallen Angels section, which is um, – Section that's very, very sexist. So I, I apologize to everybody in the world before we begin. <laughs> I will be I will be changing the pronouns appropriately. <clears throat> uh, Peter, he started his sex education with a book titled What Every Guy Should Know. It wasn't too long before he was reading The Care and Feeding of Infants. I, uh... I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I get this one. Well... <sighs> oh. For Brad, all the girls have to do is put two and two together, and they have his number. Okay. Wait, his number's four? (laughs) Uh, Ben, he runs a gamut of emotions from yes to yes. Wow, these are very profoundly sexist. Yeah. Well, HT, the only thing you ever give is in...
We're going to contact the HR department of Slash Home right now. All right, I'm going to open another, another page. I need, I need to... Oh, yeah. Um, as a speaker, Peter's like a ship. He toots the loudest in a, when in a fog. Oh, no. I mean... Uh, well, yeah, this... Okay. <laughs> Even Jacob, Jacob has, has finally gotten stumped. Even Jacob has come to us. Oh, okay, this is enough. <laughs> well, I'm a sound speaker. Oh, those sounds. Oh, no. See, see guys, buying Kyber crystals does not sound like a bad idea after any jokes from this book. You know, this book cost me four ninety nine years ago, Peter. And each How one of these... many years ago? Maybe three or four. It's been sitting on my shelf, waiting waiting for its time. Its uh, time still has not arrived. <laughs>